0: This is Dr. Madhusudan Katti from the North Carolina State University.
1: And I'm Dr. Katie Mack, also from North Carolina State University.
0: And we are here for another episode of Science, A Candle in the Dark, which is our effort to bring science into the public discourse on a semi-regular basis.
2: Yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: We've we've been somewhat semi-regular. And today we have a a special guest with us, uh, all the way from stockholm that's right uh dr thomas El- elmquist from the stockholm resilience center and uh, i was just telling him that we, we talked about stockholm a little bit last in the last episode because we were talking about swedish greta
1: mm. oh yes oh. yes
0: mm. unfortunately he doesn't know her personally, <laughs> Not I went, personally. yeah well, no other. You know other of course yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so uh just by way of introduction a little bit more so thomas and i've i've known you for over 10 years now mm-hmm. it seems kind of scary <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, we we met in uh, an urban ecology mm-hmm. conference but you've been at this the stockholm resilience center and and part of why I, I i thought it'd be interesting to talk to you for the podcast is because of the moment we are in environmentally ecologically in the in sort of civilizationally perhaps uh, especially in the context of the recent ipcc report and other things about how what might be the doom of humanity or the future of humanity and these are questions you've been working on quite a lot and of course Katie has been is writing a book about the end, of the death of the universe itself. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> different doom, doom is
1: is my brand at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it's a different scale. I'll so, do doom, yeah. yeah. So, perhaps we can you know tell us a little bit more about the the resilience center and how you came into this, into studying these things, mm-hmm. starting as an ecologist. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, as an ecologist, I, I was trained uh, very much within the discipline. And, and uh, uh, I was told by my supervisors that uh, when you're doing fieldwork, you, you should select areas as far as you could get from from human centers <laughs> or from cities. Uh, so that's how it all started. Uh-huh. And But I, I had sort of a revelation when I did... Uh, fieldwork in the South Pacific and uh, on the islands of Samoa. And uh, the islands were hit by two very severe hurricanes. And mm. and so I had to switch my studies from just looking at pollination in the forest to trying to understand how uh, the population there actually could cope with these massive disturbances. And, and it was fantastic to um, actually go deeper in and understand how culture during hundreds of years or maybe thousands of years have had sort of and people have adapted to this uh, there is sort of a high frequency of hurricanes on mm-hmm. average one every 30 years so every generation somehow exposed to this and how they incorporated sort of preparedness for mm. this in the culture so that there was knowledge on on emergency food for example to mm ferment breadfruit which could last for, well, for uh, months and <clears throat> and if you have a like a big pit of fermented breadfruit you could feed a whole village for for months mm-hmm. and um, also the the land tenure system they had these buffer communally owned buffer zones which they could use w- when there really was a big crisis and mm-hmm. the distributional system Mm. Uh, I was stunned when I was there to see how people all the time were giving gifts. uh, And the gifts were sort of circulating from one family to another. And uh, I finally understood what it does. It creates sort of a fine mesh of social relationship in the community. So after this disturbance, this was sort of activated and no one was left behind. Because Uh there was all these connections of gift giving had established... Relationship, so it was nice to see that this very positive side of human, Mm -hmm. of humans, it it was working. Mm. And I think another important lesson was that we then compared what's happened in Samoa to, to what happened in in another South Pacific archipelago in Tahiti, where after a hurricane, um, you didn't see that because, for. Decades and decades, the French government, whenever there is a, this catastrophe like that, they will, they will come in with lots of cash and sort of support, and so all these this knowledge and this this fine yeah. woven mesh of social relationship were not there. And another striking thing, which sort of brought me further into to more anthropology and social science was, uh, and. To understand the sort of tight connection between the people and nature, so I, <clears throat> after hurricane, I, I went around to ask the farmers what they could do to uh, reduce the effect of another hurricane. Because everyone know there will be another one coming. You can't predict when and where and how.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and the second most frequent answer I got from all the farmers is maintaining a high diversity among my crops, huh. to so like an insurance. So mm-hmm. they don't. You can't predict the hurricane, the severity, and when and where and during the sort of season <clears throat> it comes. So having a very broad diversity of different types of crops and different varieties for, for the same crop as well mm. increase your probability to have something to harvest and something to to use for replanting. And that was also very striking when comparing so, with Tahiti, for example, where most of farming was f- focused on, on one commodity of even a commercial crop and very monoculture.
0: So so, so it's interesting that it's not that there is one variety or one type of crop that is more hurricane resistant. No, not really, because you can't yeah.
3: predict when. So it depends yeah. on which growing st- stadium <coughs> it is, what the sort mm. of phenological stadium, and, and also geographically where it's located at that particular time. Mm. So that made me very interested in, in these deeper... Lots of sort of biocultural connections, how culture and and nature had kind of co-evolved for maybe a thousand years in, in that setting, and to move back my study sites from being as far as <laughs> yeah. you could come from a city to actually mm. put it right in the city to try yeah. to understand. Also in the modern world, yeah. wh- what are these connections between people and nature, and yeah. how, how can we foster them, and how can we understand them? What, yeah. What's the importance?
1: So how much do you think this was part of, was driven by sort of long cultural traditions and how much do you think it was sort of, uh, at some level, a function of scale? So, um, you know, small communities where everybody knows each other, you can have these yeah, yeah. these conversations, mm-hmm. this, these um, communal things, whereas when you go up to larger and larger groups, it, it becomes more difficult for um, for that kind of, system to work
3: yeah you're absolutely right i mean this social network Mm -hmm. uh, had evolved over a long time but in in a very local context and and so everyone sort of established knowledge and and you had these contacts and and so so in a similar group but without those the long history of building relationship uh, you would the situation would of course be very different
1: so, so there's there's aspects of both the sort of cultural traditions and mm, the scale mm, um, yeah, coming into yeah. that
3: there. And also, I think um,
0: so. The so the Tahiti, and, so that's similar and, and scale abs- populations, but, yeah, but the absence
3: of sort of a colonial power <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. And yeah. some sort of self governance. I think mm-hmm. was very important. And and the the self governance is in, in that culture uh, very strong, even on the village level. So even not the national government has very little to. Uh, they have to be very careful walking into a village. I mean, mm. because they are very, they have a very strong self-governance and very mm. proud. They even have their own sort of legal system in parallel with sort of a more Western system. <clears throat> mm. So it, it's so I got very interested in, in culture, even yeah. though I, I had no training. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I and then. I came to Stockholm and realized that, that there was this whole research field developing there on understanding social-ecological system, and I thought this is exactly where I would be.
1: <laughs> and and the the name of the center, the Resilience Center. Is, yeah, that is, came. Uh,
3: it, it started in two thousand seven, and um, it was was building on this emerging research um, at Stockholm University on on social-ecological systems and. So I was part of writing the proposal that became the center, and I, I've been been there since it started.
1: And is that is, is the idea to um, just look at those connections between communities and the environment, or in or to learn lessons from that and apply it to, you know, resilience around things like climate change? What well, what's the sort of I goal? mean,
3: there is sort of this curiosity-driven research on on getting deeper into understanding these. Uh, connections Systems, and yeah. the, the culture dimension um, as well as w- what does this mean when it comes to applying or, or developing solutions that are more sustainable and, and, uh, I, and frankly i was i was sort of not very supportive in the beginning to uh, that we the name Stockholm resilience center was picked because i saw Resilience is just one di- dimension of the research. The research is much more, this broader on social, ecological, and cultural,
2: Systems,
3: human yeah. nature, which is very broad, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and and resilience is like in one dimension of, of the system. Mm. Uh, but it was sort of I was it became the it, <laughs> uh, and sort of like a catchy emerging concept. Um,
0: and and the concept has... At least the world has caught on. Yeah, the world has caught
3: on. But we are trying to, we need to really um, be actively part of the discourse around that concept because it's, it's often not very well defined or sometimes misunderstood or misused. So I come into contact in many cases where people think it's more or less the same. I mean sustainability and resilience or that they are always positively correlated and or that resilience is always good and we, we have to start building the, this more critical discussion around that in order to make these concept much more useful and and have a deeper meaning if if <clears throat> if they are very vaguely defined or overlap mm-hmm. uh, or very shallow uh, we will lose interest and, and sort of they will not be very useful anymore.
0: So, you've been thinking and talking about this for years now. So, do you have a, a quick, you know, definition of resilience that captures?
3: Well, uh, yeah, well, dimensions? I think that the, that definition always have to be the, <clears throat> sort of posted in, in in relation to an understanding of sustainability. So, uh, I think the, both concepts are really important, um, but, but they are more important when you put them together and, and also, also when you link to the concept of transformation. So starting with sustainability, um, for me, the, the core message of sustainability is equity, uh, and, and when it comes to uh, managing resources, both within and between generations. And that goes back to the very original interpretation of sustainability. Over time, sustainability... People seem to have
0: forgotten that. Hmm? People seem to have forgotten that.
3: So over time, and and it's very clear in the sustainable development goal discussion, sustainability has become more and more of emphasizing efficiency. Efficiency Mm -hmm. in resource use, water, energy, which is important. But if it's only that, uh, we we are in deep trouble. Mm -hmm. Because resilience uh, is actually... Uh, when, when you when you develop a system to become more and more efficient, you are sacrificing resilience. Mm. Because resilience is about, is about these redundant mechanisms in your system.
2: Mm.
3: So then you, you end up in this trade-off, <laughs> uh, which you want to get out of. So then you need a, a much broader definition of sustainability and also an understanding of resilience. So sustainability is the normative. It's about equity and <clears throat> about mm. also efficient resource use. Um, Uh, but it's the vision and the goal for society. Uh, Resilience, as we define it, is is non-normative. It's an attribute of a system. It's neither good nor bad. It depends on the context. It's desirable Mm. or undesirable. It could be managed. You could reduce or increase resilience. Uh, And uh, so resilience uh, is actually... If you, if you look at development as a trajectory where, where you try to increase your sustainability, which also would involve that you increase equity in society, um, you resilience could be sort of your safety net you, that would allow you to experiment to, to uh, <clears throat> also to, would be tolerant to mistakes. So you could actually bounce yeah. around within sort of a, this safety net. But you continue to develop.
1: Can you say a little bit more about the connection between sustainability and equity? Because when, when I hear sustainability, I yeah. think, you know, not wasting uh, yeah, things, that's, you that's know. sort and, of zero
3: waste and efficiency. Yes. That's the, that's, that's the normal. But I think we will fail unless we bring in that very strong social equity dimension.
1: So what... what can you say more about that? Like, what is it that fails, or how is? Well,
3: then you would ask sustainability for whom. I mean, okay. if it's if we have a very uh, a society with with strong inequity, uh, mm-hmm. um, I, I think in the long run we will we'll fail because of the, the social tensions that will. Maintained yeah
1: same. as as a as a physicist i, I think of mm-hmm. this in terms of like a non-linear response right mm-hmm. so when i yeah. say non-linear response usually it's talking about something where you have a small push in one direction and it gives mm-hmm. you a, a really large effect and mm. and um, i see uh, you know these big divisions big inequities as yeah. s- as a setup for a nonlinear sort of kind it's of you, system yeah no,
3: we call it revolution <laughs> yeah, yeah well <laughs> yeah. yeah right yeah yeah we you we've lose had, equilibrium we had, very quickly i mean if we look back in history we, we yeah. can see what happens yeah when uh, when you inequity rise to a certain level i mean yeah it explodes
1: and and this is you know this is one of the things that that like modern Western society is really um, coming up against right that the, yeah, this well, these these inequities are growing so large, and then climate change is is this spark yeah. that's that's really pushing exactly. and and the on consequences
3: that. are sort of unequally you
1: know, distributed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. So 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 increasing efficiencies and sustainability in that unequal context mm. would mean differential results for people in mm-hmm. different ends of things right so some mm-hmm. people will be fine mm-hmm. and others will not
1: yeah but when you and, have and more yeah. more people who are, who are not, who fine, are not then fine, that's yeah, when they, you get this uh, yeah <laughs> that's when the revolution <laughs> the is, happens. Is,
0: happens or is yeah. needed yeah
3: mm-hmm. so but i think there are these interesting connections between the concepts so in a situation where you manage to have um, sort of a big safety net for, for for your trajectory Uh, you you could do all sorts of um, uh, we call them directed transformation these are these proactive um uh actions you could take and and we need a lot of them when it comes to climate change as well Mm -hmm. uh and and this wider safety net would allow for that development that you could test and experiment and but then sometimes um uh you will also need uh, a very abrupt or drastic transformation. Mm. And the example we we often point to is uh, like in a transport system to go from a fossil fuel-based transport s- system to something mm. else that is more sustainable. But in order to to reach that transformation, you actually need to reduce resilience of the existing system.
2: Mm.
3: So you need to reduce the resilience to of break the, f- it, yeah. the fossil fuel industry and the automotive right industry which is very powerful and it's it's uh, challenging but that's mm-hmm. something we need to embark on and i think um what is happening now with Gieta and others is like interesting uh, global yeah. mobilization yeah
1: yeah so it sound, so it sounds like there's a there's a real mix of approaches where on on one hand you need to have a sort of societal uh, changes where people are more mm. connected to the environment, more um, mm. connected to each other, but mm. then also technological changes to replace yeah. some of these these <clears throat> harmful technologies that we've, yeah, we've you got.
3: Yeah, you need, we call it an attractor mm-hmm. um, in order for all this transformation also to happen. You can't just reduce resilience. You need, an, and we have existing technology, but then you need financial mechanisms and you mm-hmm. also need some enabling sort of uh, regulation from national you governments could, or supranational... Because like, you could go the other way. European Union. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, but often you probably would need some really strong external force like um, the financial crisis 2008, which mm. really shocked the world. But then <laughs> it turned unfortunately, out to be resilient not much the, positive came yeah, out of that. But yeah, maybe there's yeah. another shock coming yeah. uh, that could help uh, tip that scale.
1: So there's there's something that I was reading about a while back, and I, I might I might get this wrong, so so correct me. Um, that it was looking at uh, sort of stages of of technological or, or kind of economic development in societies where, you know, uh, when when everybody's kind of poor and and in, in the sense of not having a, a huge GDP or whatever, and and there's mm. a lot of uh, sort of local uh, work and local connections, um, the sort of uh, ec- ecological footprint is quite small. And then when uh, when people uh, start to develop more uh, industrial revolution type mm-hmm. technologies, then it gets really big and then it turns over at some point when there's more yeah. um, more efficient <laughs> systems come in, more, you know, better technologies <laughs> that are less polluting and less wasteful. And so you can have a kind of there's there's a sort of hump somewhere in the middle where where there's sort of maximum damage to the environment and then mm-hmm. and then you can get this turnover and I'm wondering like how much how much is there and is the effort to kind of
2: get, get past that, that
1: get hump. that get past that hump both in terms of the the societal you know um, you know I mean in the middle of an industrial revolution there's usually quite a lot of inequity mm. and then sometimes you can get systems in place that can can reduce that mm. uh, inequity and then you can also have these technological developments mm. and is there a way to kind of go through that, uh, mm. that that doesn't, you know, create a big shock to the environment? Or to people. Or to people, yeah.
3: yeah. I mean, reducing inequity <laughs> is challenging, mm. uh, particularly since since we don't have sort of a global governance system mm-hmm. to... So if we had sort of a global tax <laughs> taxation system, it could yeah. work. But yeah. what happens now, like in one country or like European Union, mm-hmm. uh, they introduce uh, sort of crackdown on, on, on tax evasion and, and try to spread the wealth more equally. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a lot of... The actors would move to somewhere else. Yeah. Somewhere right, else. Right, and right. and, right. and uh, so that would sort of undermine mm-hmm. that sort of those efforts. Unless you had sort of a global system for that. But right. uh, I can't see any way we will get there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah. so the disc- one discouraging thing is that, uh, and this is the French economist Thomas Piketty's uh, yeah. main message, is that uh, we have gone through these waves of, Inequity, but then increasing equity, and then mm-hmm. increasing inequity, mm-hmm. and the, the sort of the punctuated equilibria or the, or the, the disruptive phases have always been big wars. Mm. Yeah, so the wars would wipe out old money and power structures and and wealth, and it, then it becomes redistributed, and you end up in a society that is relatively more equitable, but then it was slowly go on the path to be, become more and more you know, inequitable. Yeah.
1: All. One of the things that worries me a lot these days, looking at the the sort of global response to climate change, is that a lot of people in the kind of wealthiest uh Brackets are looking around and saying, "Okay, I need to, you know, buy land in New Zealand mm. and create yeah. a bunker or something," um, mm. because because uh, you know the effects of climate change are very mm. in, you know in, mm. unevenly distributed, and so there are a lot of people there are a lot of um, uh, a lot of people and and entire societies that are trying to get more and more sort of closed mm. in, bigger walls, all of this kind mm. of thing as a response, and that seems like the exact opposite of what. Mm what will help get everyone through this and so it, yeah. it does seem to be building toward you know the kind of thing that that creates this this you know non-linear kind of mm. response this mm. revolution mm. kind of effect and 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 I, it seems like we could go two different ways in terms of a global response to, to climate change and, and and uh you know these sort of growing inequalities is we could you know kind of we're all in this together mm. you know try and create a solution that works for everybody or the rich and powerful can create their little bunkers their and then yeah. and then uh you know it's mm. terrible everywhere mm. <laughs> you know and I, they think I'm, they'll
0: ride it out yeah, yeah
1: but only, yeah. Temporarily.
0: <laughs> only
3: temporarily i don't know
1: are you optimistic what, what's your uh, thought on this
3: well you i mean it's hard to be too optimistic but <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. certainly is, not, that,
0: is that something you've been accused of because <laughs> I, I, mean, I was thinking i've always known you to be an optimist but uh I'll, but yeah. i'm certainly
3: not pessimistic i mean yeah. okay. uh, because i think that's sort of a uh, self fulfilling <laughs> mm-hmm. if you're very pessimistic and uh, uh, and um, you lose energy and you're mm-hmm. you're not engaging and and if everyone is the same <laughs> you, you would not be able to change anything yeah um But So so that's one reason I've been working a lot with cities, because Mm. I think that's one, at least we should try the role cities could have in taking the leadership. And I think there is one potential, and I could see that in international collaboration, where local governments come together, it's very solution-oriented, and it's very much of sharing knowledge and and, uh, helping each other, which is so different when you listen to when u n member states start talking because the, yeah. there's this deep historical legacy between uh <clears throat> colonial states and and colonized and, and mm-hmm. which which is important but it, it, it's there and, and it doesn't sort of contribute to the solution while while the cities don't really carry that sort of burden of oh. of the history to the so same extent.
1: What what do you mean by that? Like what is it about the colonial
3: that... sort of shame or burden or or so I I was in Copenhagen 2009 at uh, when, when the UN climate change yeah. conference and and we, there was so much hope uh, that Turning the, the, the world should come together <laughs> but when you were sitting in in the big plenary room listening to the member states there, there was always this antagonism between um, previously colonized countries and Africa and others and, and towards North America or Europe mm-hmm. and, and they never came out of sort of that that, that state to discuss mm-hmm. what what how, but how could we work together I mean we have this huge problem and then you could go to another room and listen to. People from the same countries, but they were representing local governments, and it, it was a completely different energy about finding solutions and working together. And so, I think that was encouraging yeah. that there there is this potential for local governments to to, to take the lead.
1: So, you, when you talk about cities, you're talking about um, sort of from the bottom up uh, solutions rather than. Um, Decrees national from, scale, from yeah. National scales,
3: but of course, the local governments would need the national governments on board to enable mm-hmm. <coughs> these solutions to happen.
1: I mean, is you know, there's there's some interesting stuff even just within the U.S. where uh, on the national level there's very little happening in terms of um, climate, mm-hmm. you know, uh, solutions. But uh, in like California, for mm-hmm. example, there, the California government and various cities mm-hmm. and and counties in California are just throwing everything they can mm. at uh, you know better emission standards mm-hmm. you know new mm. energy um, things and not everything is working there's mm. high-speed rail that's not mm. going very well <laughs> various things like that yeah. but um, but the you know basically I think that that uh, California and a few other states have decided okay the government's the national government's not going to do anything mm. we're gonna you know we're gonna take this on and and because you know these are very highly populated mm. um regions you you actually can have a big impact mm-hmm. and and I guess if if enough big cities uh, get together and say okay we're going to change it so many people mm-hmm. live in big cities that mm-hmm. that you do have a, a hope of, mm-hmm. of making a big difference
0: yeah i think that's kind of what i remember you mm-hmm. telling me after rio plus 20 that you saw more hope
3: in among the, the in, local governments, the yeah. local governments mm-hmm.
0: than mm-hmm. at the national scale but the example of california uh, also brings me to my other concern, which is uh, climate change sort of sucking up all the energy in the environmental mm-hmm. sphere mm-hmm. and all of the focus on climate change and solutions to climate change within the sustainability framework, the way you articulate that it's it's about efficiencies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the process, as uh, someone who's more focused on biodiversity and conservation, I worry about the the trade-offs that people are making, especially in California has many examples where the desert ecosystems, for example, which are highly biologically diverse and rich and old Mm. are not considered as having much value. And people just think of that, hey, there's lots of sunlight there. Let's just go put Mm -hmm. large-scale solar solar plants. Mm. And that causes a lot of habitat destruction that could be avoided. So, so these kinds of trade-offs are being made and sometimes I feel, you know, and I get into arguments with climate hawks in terms of what are we actually fighting for here? You know, mm-hmm. on the one hand, yes, I can see, you know, larger scale, the argument is made often that if climate is changing so rapidly, it's going to destroy all habitats and a lot of species are going to die anyway. Mm-hmm. So we can sacrifice some to stop that. But I also worry that in... in trying to do that you're already sacrificing species mm. so you know it's like the ends versus means kind of uh, mm. an, an argument so i wonder what your perspective is again
3: on what... i think when when you scale down from from global or national to to local government uh, <clears throat> biodiversity and climate uh, issues come together uh, in a much more direct way and and that it it's obvious for a lot of cities around the world. That um, not only is it important to reduce uh, uh, emissions and the mitigation, but adaptation is also very high on the agenda because that's about health and it's about mm. people's lives. And and um, looking at what 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 actually you have on the on the table when it comes to uh, address adaptation to climate change, uh, then. Increasingly, peop- um, local governments are looking at how they could use living systems as um, one way of reducing the effects of heat waves, for example. Mm. Increasing canopy covers in cities, green spaces, mm. green roofs. Uh, or restoring wetlands to reduce uh, peaks and precipitation and to protect people and property. And So I think there, these two issues come together and and you can't sort of address climate change without also addressing how you manage living systems. And you you need Mm -hmm. functional living systems that could sustain these functions over a long time. For that, you need diversity as well.
0: So it's going back to your original example from the Samoan Islands that you need a-
3: And, and, And also it's important that cities increasingly are aware of that it's not just within the municipal boundary, because uh, the, yeah, the what, what long distance it's important for the city to create incentives for more sustainable land management in, in, in a much larger region because that's where for example the flood risk is sort of related to how, how do you, how is land managed in a watershed area <clears throat> and uh, would have an enormous impact on, on the risk of flooding and in, in, in a more concentrated urban center? so how could the city be part of creating incentives for landowners to manage their land in a way that would reduce the risk of flooding in in the center Mm. so that that would establish i think a a healthy connection between the land and the city yeah
1: so what kinds of um initiatives is your center uh putting out there right now what 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 kind of work are you doing uh, well, for example, we're,
3: we're working uh, very much with ICLE. This, this is the global organization for municipalities so local mm-hmm. governments. Local governments for sustainability. We have about two or three, nearly 3,000 members now, uh, which are focused on, on on this issue of of um, taking sustainability really seriously. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what does it mean when it comes to linking climate and biodiversity? So, and we, we're doing a lot to of that together with really in Africa now, uh, where- these So ICL is? Uh, the Local Government for Sustainability.
0: Yeah, I'm just asking the acronym, what does it stand for? Uh, yeah, Three that's numbers. a good question. The international
3: <laughs> something for local environment. It's an old acronym. Okay. It's translated right. as lo- Local Governments for Sustainability. Okay. Mm. I think it's French from the beginning. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, where, where <laughs> this concept of nature-based solution has taken on, uh, uh, and a lot of the interest in nature-based solution when it comes to climate change adaptation in African cities is, is also financial, uh, that these nature-based solutions are much cheaper, mm. both to implement and maintain over time yeah. than yeah. very expensive engineering solutions. Yeah. Uh, so, that, that has created, a, a, and also creates yeah. a lot of innovation that... You need these solutions to be very locally uh, um, adapted to a local context, which some of these big engineering solutions may or may not. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they may come from some sort of engineering mm-hmm. business in Europe and just dumped in, <laughs> in right. and maybe don't work it very well over time. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very encouraging uh, to um, to see that interest on, on um the local level.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm still struck by I mean this is Mm. there's a new paper out that I saw this figure from yesterday in Frontiers Journal, which shows the media coverage Mm. of climate change versus biodiversity issues. Mm. And the graph is quite striking that there's there's a big gap, especially the spikes in Mm. climate change coverage. And especially going back to 1992, which oh. is when the first Earth Summit, which which is where both the, the Convention on Biological Diversity started, but also the climate, you know, the, the IPCC, sort of those processes started. But it seems like one of them really took off oh. and has had a much bigger impact on our discourse and the whole sustainability debate and solutions and everything else. Oh. But the other one has not made as much headway. Why do you think that is, and how do we well, change that?
3: I, I mean, there are tons of reasons, but one is sort of, uh, the climate, it, it, it's it's an issue which is extremely contested. You have strong actors, and, and uh, so it makes an issue um, of, of huge conflict. While biodiversity issues, most people- They tend to be ag- local. Yeah, yeah. And it, most people yeah. will agree. Yeah, it's a, but, but, but then you, you will, over time, see this sort of slow degradation anyway. Mm. Uh, but I, I think you're right, they were sort of together in, in 92 in Rio yeah, and they, yeah. they drifted apart. But what I think we see now is they tend to come together again. And, and there was this big call in Guardian like two days ago yeah, with uh, Greta Thunfjell, but then all other sort of very prominent activists and politician and politicians uh, this call, a letter in the Guardian. A letter in the Guardian uh, calling the world for really, in, in, in to national governments and local governments, to, to make huge investments in ecological restoration mm-hmm. as one way of addressing both the biodiversity and the climate change adaptation issue. Mm-hmm. They, they said uh reducing emissions yes we have to do it it's important everyone knows but we also have to do this <laughs> mm-hmm. restoring uh, ecosystems yeah. around the globe uh, to address the biodiversity crisis and the climate change adaptation crisis
0: both have to happen together
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean I, th- I think you know to address your question it's the, th- the thing about climate change is there's there's a number Right, and you can just you can just draw a plot, and it's and (laughs) and it's very clear what's happening with that plot. I mean, not even I mean the global. um, You know, you've got the temperature, you've got the sea ice coverage, you've got the parts per million uh, carbon dioxide. All of these things are very very obvious, Uh, very very. You know, there's it's quantifiable, it's very clear. Whereas you, in order to appreciate. The importance of biodiversity—you have to already be sort of in touch with the environment in a way that that most people in you know in the states certainly are, are not.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I, in terms of the science and the the numbers, the numbers are there too, right? Right, I mean, but people it, are talking, writing, talking about this insect apocalypse sure. now, and and there are lots of recent studies showing massive declines in a number of taxa. Mammals declining, fisheries declining, all kinds of species are sort of going.
1: But it's a little in, in harder to line. measure, right? Because you have to you have to know how many species there were to begin with, and you have to. In there's is, the question of discovering versus. I, it, I mean, I, yeah. I'm not I'm not saying it's not, a, a, you know, a thing that we need to talk about more. I'm just no, saying, I'm, like, I'm, I understand why, yeah. you know, the, this yeah, could so be something that's harder. No, to No, I understand it as well.
0: Uh, but I'm I'm, cu- I'm As you know, as science communicators, I'm sort of yeah. curious about how do we. Try and communicate that more complex, yeah. perhaps crisis, which might actually be simpler to address in some ways. Mm. I don't know. You know, in, in this framework of sort of using nature-based solutions mm-hmm. to combat climate change, takes care of both, perhaps. So maybe the answer is simpler rather than technological mm-hmm. solutions of trying to yeah. suck carbon out of the air or you know sequester with technology. But how do we communicate this? The more complex. Mm-hmm. science of bi- of extinction and biodiversity and, and and the various things that are causing that mm-hmm. as opposed to you know the two degree rise in temperature and 12 years is all we have left is kind of the yeah. story now
1: well i think it's a it's a matter mm-hmm. of getting across the like why yeah. people should care about biodiversity you know and then it's it's obvious why i should care about two degrees hotter uh earth right because it it, it drastically affects my lifestyle um but why i should care about you know the yeah. the species of frogs that exists in the world that's that's a harder thing to communicate it is mm-hmm. it is a challenge i think it's very a very yeah. important one that we need to to address but but again i think allowing people to have more of a connection with with yeah. the natural world would would solve both of those problems to a large degree yeah that's yeah, the whole that's theme. where the-
3: I mean it's a challenge but we need to do it in cities because that's where mm. the majority of people live and- Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, and and things like you know getting more people involved in citizen science might be one of those yeah. options you know helping out. like all these backyard yeah. uh observation things and and yeah. that that can make a really big difference as well get people more connected to and invested in the the natural world and around them
3: also give people tools that they could feel a bit more power. They could do mm. things with yeah. their own garden. They could plant mm. um, species that would attract yeah. pollinators or, yeah. or or fruit dispersers and, and actually make an active contribution.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Which, which also loops back to the original idea of sustainability and equity, I yeah. think, because there's a lot of mm-hmm. inequity in access to yeah. these nature-based solutions mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So that's the other part of it that we need to
1: well yeah things like community address. gardens could yeah. be very uh, important in these kinds of efforts you know that's that's something that i think is I, i've seen it um taking off in various parts of europe but in the yeah. states there's there's not much of this where you have you know in a in an urban center there's a pl- plot of yeah. land that is yeah. parceled up you know that's that would be great if it if that were yeah. more common in urban places here
0: yeah uh, I think in Detroit they were trying to do some things like that with mm. uh, in in the post-industrial sort of mm. landscape mm-hmm. there, but there's not too many examples here. Yeah, Europe yeah. has has more of those.
3: Yeah. What do you call them? Allotment gardens. Allotment gardens yeah, right. yeah, yeah. They're yeah. yeah, quite common yeah. and, and yeah. Uh, spreading. And <laughs> yeah, in the,
1: in the UK they were very very popular. Yeah, yeah.
3: And there's also uh, that's interesting because in Europe we we're going through like an aging process we become yeah. an aging society uh, japan is sort of way ahead they they are not calling themselves a super aging society but mm. there's mm. also this challenge how to how to adapt to this aging condition with when mm. people have different needs and so mm. one strategy that's been employed in different countries is actually to engage the yeah. older people in community gardening
2: mm-hmm.
3: for yeah. several reasons. One is sort of uh, maintaining um, uh, the knowledge and, and these older people will inter- interact with kindergartens and schools and, mm-hmm. uh, and transfer knowledge <coughs> across generation. and what is actually a health for, the, for this ageing population. Older, yeah. mm-hmm. By having this uh, contact and some meaningful thing and see things grow mm-hmm. actually improve and, and reduces dementia mm-hmm. and mm. other ill effects that older people are, are suffering from. So mm. it's, it's actually a, yeah. an important health strategy for society.
2: Yeah.
0: Maybe somebody in the White House needs to take... <laughs> pay attention to that one but <laughs> <laughs> anyway i think that might be the note for us to end the discussion here <laughs> uh, but yeah it's been it's 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 a pleasure to have you here for the brief time that you're visiting yeah. i will come back yeah Good. we look yeah. forward to having you back here and i'm glad you got to meet yeah Thank and, you. thanks yeah.
1: for the conversation this is uh, yeah, yeah it's great to it's great to hear about all these things that are much more connected to, to people in society than what I usually think about in my research. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's the idea of doing this. Yes. right? I mean, my, yeah. So, so I think that's we'll we'll wrap with that, and okay. uh, we'll be back uh, at at some point in the near future. Yes. We are not setting dates. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, sometime when I'm not on airplanes. So.
0: Yeah. We might have to figure out a way to record you from distant places. Maybe. Sure. But, yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thank you.